From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. On this episode of Land Stories, we are going to pick up where we left off a little while ago. Uh, for those of you who are our loyal listeners, you will remember that we did a lovely show on signs and signage here in Lansing, and kind of the general idea of figuring out while you're getting around and what needs to be done, and the role that signs play in that. And to help us along those lines, we had a wonderful guest in here, Daniel Sewick, joined us in studio, and he joins us again today to uh, discuss more about Lansing Area Science. So, Daniel, welcome to our program. Thank you. Happy to be back. Very happy to have you uh, with us. And, and just to give kind of a quick refresher of our previous program, which I would encourage all of you to go back and listen to if you have not had a chance to do so yet, on the last program, we started talking about sort of some general ideas of communication and public communication and the role signs play in that. Uh, as Daniel correctly identified, signs are a very uh, old and important part of human civilization, actually. And then we got into looking at some really cool old signs that are in Lansing, actually, uh, including some that are from businesses and buildings that have either been repurposed or don't exist anymore, uh, really, in the form they once did. And that's kind of where we're going to pick up uh, here today in part two of this Lansing sign episode. So... Daniel, you brought uh, along with us today some photographs, but you also brought, more importantly, some discussion about those photographs. What's the first thing that we're going to uh, consider as we're looking at the signs of this area here? Well, the first thing I'd like to talk about is a small building that some of you may be familiar with. I'll show the picture here briefly. Uh, this is, well, was the uh, one of the Sinclair Oil's gas stations that uh, were prominent all around the United States uh, in the early part of the automobile era of the uh, last century. Sure, and the uh, the visual that Daniel's showing up, for those of you that are listening to the podcast and aren't able to catch the, the uh, video, it is a uh, photo of a building that actually is in Lansing currently. Uh, it sits at the corner of Grand River and Capitol Avenue. Uh, is that correct, or is it, is it uh, Seymour Street? It's Seymour. It's Seymour. So Grand River and Seymour and Lansing's north side, just on the edge of downtown and uh, Old Town, really kind of in between Old Town and downtown, actually, uh, the Walnut neighborhood. And and that gas station, uh, well, that's what it was when it was built. It was a gas station. And how long has that been there? Well, if uh, according to the uh, little sign that sits by the historical marker, uh, it was actually built uh, in, uh, well, designed in 1923. Sure. So early 1920s, and Lansing is booming, bustling industrial town, like most of Southern Michigan uh, was at the time. And of course, Lansing was booming for a variety of reasons, one of which was being automobile production. Uh, Lansing has a very rich and long history uh, of automobile production, including uh, brand marquees, General Motors, Oldsmobile, and then, of course, uh, the real motor car company and Durant Motors were all manufacturers at one time in this area. And so cars were a big deal here in Lansing in the uh, early 1920s, weren't they? Uh, yes, indeed. And the a little backstory about uh, this particular building uh, it was a uh, Sinclair Oils gas station 
Uh, Sinclair was a prominent uh, a gas gas station uh, franchise, or uh, if you will, um, much like what you would expect to find now with a Shell or a Speedway or or have you. The company was actually around until quite recently, um, in one form or another. But um, the Sinclair brand was kind of an iconic uh, sign that many motorists would have um, would have been accustomed to at the time, um, and they they. Their branding um, was kind of uh, centered actually around the building in a lot of ways. And the signage, of course, was integral to that. Uh, this building you see here, and I'll show, I'll hold the photo up again briefly so those of, those of us watching can see it. Uh, but I can describe it as well. The uh, building itself was designed in an arts and crafts style, if you will, which was popular at the time. Um, Sinclair Oils... Uh, kind of incorporated some of their branding, though, into it as far as the uh, tile roof, the terracotta tile roof. Um, those were prominent on the gas stations. But then, of course, the signage. Now, this building has been wonderfully restored, and it didn't keep all of the signage, but it kept some of it, particularly the hand-painted Sinclair Oils uh, window lettering on uh, one of the upper windows, uh, lights as we call them, skylight windows. Um, there's also, uh, the pump itself has some of the Sinclair branding on it, yeah. which is very iconic. A complete with uh, 17 cents uh, and 9 tenths uh, a gallon. Uh, yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Uh, it sure would be. Uh, gas isn't anywhere near that cheap. These days, by golly, I drove by a gas station uh, actually not too long ago, and it was well north of 3 bucks a gallon. So, yep. Would have been a lot uh, a lot cheaper back then, that's for sure. Now, Sinclair Oil. You mentioned that. You mentioned that there's still some of the, well, now we would call it, uh, would you call that historic branding? Uh, what, what would you refer to it when somebody paints or in some way illustrates off of a previously existing branding? Is uh, there historic reproduction. Historic reproduction. Recreation. And that building, it, it's now a National Historic uh, place. It's on a registry, National Historic Registry, isn't it? Yes, it is. Which is really something. And I, I wonder if uh, not only the architectural style, but also the fact that that was a Sinclair Oil Station that we can identify for sure uh, in the building still there. Do you think that might have had a little bit of a, of a role to play in why that one of all, uh, well, number one, survived, and then number yes. two eventually ended up becoming a historic place? I think for sure. And... And what's interesting, a lot of things are interesting about this little building, not the least of which is the location of it. Uh, even in the 1920s, that would not have been a really high-traveled intersection as far as ones that we think of um, nowadays. But uh, the station itself would have been located there as much for the residents to gas up their cars as it would have been for motors passing through. And Sinclair Oils was even though they had certain branding standards with their buildings, they try to keep them so they didn't stick out unnecessarily uh, in the communities. That's why this one is a arts and crafts style, like the some of the homes you'd find there. But yet they kept their terracotta, terracotta clay uh, roof and, of course, the uh, iconic branding. Yeah, and, and it is really a lovely-looking building. Um, and. And it fits in very well in that neighborhood, actually. Uh, in uh, full disclosure, Daniel and I both lived in that neighborhood uh, at one time and are not too distant past, so we're quite familiar with it. And absolutely, that 
fits in very well. And the Sinclair Oil Company, uh, actually, the name Sinclair ended up becoming involved. Uh, Dan and I were just talking about this not long ago, actually, in, in one of the great political scandals, great, when I use that word, caution here, I'm using it uh, in reference to the way people used it back then, meaning big, not necessarily good. Yes. And the Teapot Dome scandal is what I'm referring to. And Sinclair of Sinclair Oil, the company, ended up becoming in, uh, involved in it. And now we could devote quite a program to the Teapot Dome scandal. But that's going to take us all the way out to Wyoming. This is Land Stories. We'll sum it up with uh, maybe the couple-minute version of it. Warren G. Harding was president. It's the early 1920s, and technology is changing at the time. That gas station, even uh, in existence, is, well, it's evidence of it. The technology I'm referring to is energy. There's a revolution going on, and it's the use of petroleum products. And the U.S. Navy, all of a sudden, has a great need for oil, right? Because it's powering their ships. So the the Congress passed a law making it easy for the uh, government to lease oil reserves, one such individual charged with leasing his oil reserves was a guy by the name of Albert Fall. He was the secretary of the Department of the Interior. And when some of these leases went online for the first time, people noticed that very shortly thereafter, Albert Fall's standard of living seemed to have increased dramatically. How about that? Yeah, he paid off many years of back taxes that he owed on his property and had some other improvements done onto the land. The long and short of it is that money was uh, money that oil companies had bribed him with. And the Sinclair Company happened to be one of the ones that was involved in that bribery scandal. The curious thing about that is Fall ended up being convicted and uh, sentenced to prison. I believe he was until Richard Nixon's uh, uh, attorney general was uh, sentenced to prison later on uh, in the wake of the Watergate scandal that it had... I think it had been up until that point. So only two in the 20th century of uh, presidential cabinet officers ended up in prison. So anyways, that's kind of a little bit of a diversion that we ended up going down the road there. But the Sinclair oil name is, well, it is that name. And I think we definitely had to mention it. Yeah, Remarkable, David. It really yeah. is. It, yeah. just, it just shows that uh, there's a lot, a lot behind a building like this and a name like that. And uh, a sign can indeed tell a story. Oh, it, it very much. And in fact... We're going to, um, I think we're going to move on and talk about another sign here momentarily. But before we do that, Dan, and this wasn't something that I had planned on talking about, but I will uh, approach the topic. The picture that we've looked at here a little bit, it has a sign in front of it that is a much more recent sign, and that is the state uh, historical marker that is put up into it. Now, I mentioned that sign really, it's popped in my mind here. The thought occurs that. Uh, all of us that have driven around the United States, anywhere, there are a lot of historical markers that look a lot like that. And uh, I know I've seen state historical markers in all the states that I've been to in the United States, which is a lot of them, and they all look kind of like that. How is a sign like that made, and is there a reason why they all kind of look the same? Uh, well, that's a very good question. Uh, they are, there's a few ways they can be made, but what dictates how they're made, for the most part, is the durability of it. Uh, the sign in question here, I'll put it again up so folks can see it. Uh, it, it obviously, it says the filling station there. This is a cast bronze plaque, a very large, comparatively speaking, cast bronze plaque. 
So it's cast like any other metal would be. A mold is made and uh, out of sand and then a, a box to form that in. Mm-hmm. Sand and a few other things that are involved in it. And then the molten metal is poured in there and allowed to cool. And then various uh, finishing techniques can be applied to it. Uh, and then a final uh, uh, protective coat of paint will go over it, clear coat in this case. Mm-hmm. So it's a very durable sign. It can be made to last a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And that, that's primarily why they're made that way. Um, but they also need to be durable enough to stand up to the elements mm-hmm. that it faces uh, day by day. Sure. So a sturdy sign like that can withstand wind. Uh, in Michigan, you know, it could get snow piled on it. It mm-hmm. can withstand that. Yeah. So, But the other reason they're designed that way is because uh, in the case of Michigan here, they're green. Mm-hmm. Most of them are put in uh, areas that have a lot of vegetation or landscaping and whatnot. So it's something that should be aesthetically pleasing and draw people's attention to it but yet not be so overwhelming that it uh, sticks out in the neighborhood. That is incredible. Who would have known how much uh, thought and effort and design would go into to these, well, uh, to use kind of a fancy word, ubiquitous signs, because they're everywhere, aren't they? Absolutely. And, and downtown Lansing has many of them. Um, in a future episode, we are going to talk about one of those uh, many, uh, in addition to the one we spent a few moments talking about right now, and that would be one of the many that is in downtown Lansing that speaks to the area's labor history so stay tuned for that hint hint labor day comes at the end of the summer so it sounds to me like we've got another episode coming up absolutely so you however did bring a little bit more than just one sign uh, image for us to talk about today what else do you have with us oh there's another photo i will grab here and this is another building located in old town this one was located at uh 329 caesar chavez and at one point, it was the Bank of Lansing. Mm-hmm. And this is another example of the signage being tied right into the architecture. Sure. Now, in this case, this building is kind of a Greek re-revival, if you will. It's got some elements of Greek architecture, classical Greek architecture into it. But also what's important is it's a bank. So it is a building that needs to be sturdy and secure and prominent. Mm-hmm. So the type of signage that would have been appropriate for that, which we're talking turn of the last century, mm-hmm. uh, would have been a engraved, uh, a carved stone sign, if you will. Mm-hmm. So this is a prominent Bank of Lansing uh, sign manufactured right into the stone, which is uh, incorporated right into the building. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about this sign is as much of what it doesn't have as far as as much as what it has. It just says the Bank of Lansing. There's no reference to the word federal mentioned in the name of this bank at all. Mm -hmm. So that tells me that the bank was probably formed during a time of uh, relative banking ease in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a popular movement during certain uh, banking crises where the name Federal would be incorporated into the name of the bank because once the Federal Reserve System was uh, adopted and, I guess, accepted, I'll use the term accepted, Sure. Um, depositors wanted to know that their bank was backed up by the full faith and credit of the United States of America mm-hmm. in the event of a bank run. 
they would be ensured that their deposit was still there. Yep. And of course, we've seen we've seen a little bit of that recently. Oh, uh, sure. It's how funny history repeats itself, isn't it, David? Yeah, uh, I we've seen the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which is the FDIC, spring into action, and the FDIC is really the end result of some of the uh, events and processes that Daniel's describing when he's talking about bank security and and. I, I'm really glad that that is the uh, image that you selected and as the building and the sign you selected for us to spend a few moments talking about because it's kind of the same thing that we had going on when we can imagine standing on the street corner either in front of the old Sinclair oil gas station or in front of the old Bank of Lansing. If we take just a minute and look at our surroundings, oftentimes the sign being the first thing that catches our eye, we can actually learn a lot about a whole big chunk of history just by looking at one sign. And the so Daniel referred to a few things going on there uh, with that bank, uh, one of which is being the uh, ups and downs of the financial sector of the American economy as the United States economy uh, expanded and greatly advanced in its complexity. So did the uh, advancement of financial transactions and the whole banking system. It had to keep up with uh, the way the economy was growing. And so in the early 1900s, actually 1913, the uh, same year that the federal income tax was codified in the Constitution, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or excuse me, the Federal Reserve System was created. The FDIC doesn't come along until much later uh, into the 1930s. So the Federal Reserve was a new banking system for the United States. And it's basically a bank that Congress, is char- Congress charters, but it's independent of Congress. Yes. It's technically not even part of the government, even though the government regulates it. And then it has to work with the Treasury and the U.S. Mint to control the money supply. Now, that's going to be it, I promise, for our econ and banking 101 <laughs> lesson right now. But, however, I would definitely like to bring up one other building. It's a bank building in Lansing, actually, that also uh, very much has all of the same uh, exterior architectural features that this particular bank that we've been talking about has, including those signs that were actually carved into the stone. But before I get to that, Dan, I want to ask you a question about those card signs. Yes. I have been very lucky in my life to have traveled a bit, and I've seen some buildings that are very, very, very old, hundreds of years old. Actually, in some cases, well over a thousand years old. And they also have carved into the stone, uh, well, words on them that tell you what the thing is. It it could be a a cornerstone, for example. Those came about uh, slightly differently than... than, uh, the type of sign that we're looking at here, but nonetheless, they're information and they're like the immediate clues to how building is old a building is. So when the Romans or let's say uh, medieval stonemasons in, in erecting a cathedral in Europe in the 10th or 11th or 12th century carved into stone, what was the difference between the way they did it back then versus the way, say, this bank would have been done uh, much more recently, yes. only, you know, 100, 120 years ago? Well, the... The uh, Romans would have had the hammer and chisel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tried and true, yes, right? Yes, tried and true. And uh, they didn't have a spell check back then. So Get they, it right. Yeah, or start over. Yep. <laughs> well, when this sign went up, a uh, spell check hadn't been invented yet. However, um, there, there was one of two ways this sign would have been made. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the lettering would have been put in at, at the time the stone was cast, and then... The uh, made sign, if you will, would have been uh, lifted up and put in into the building at the time of construction. Mm-hmm. Or um, 
it could have also been made with uh, the aid of pneumatic tools, which they would have had um, at the time that building went up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's possible. It also could have been made with a hammer and <laughs> and chisel. Yeah, see. Um, but 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 by the time this building went up, you know, we're talking uh, late eighteen hundreds, likely. Mm-hmm. Um, there would have been some fairly modern methods by then. Yeah, late eighteen hundreds or early nineteen hundreds. Yeah. I I don't know the exact build year on that building, but by looking at it, you know, you could fairly safely say it's probably somewhere between eighteen ninety and nineteen twenty yeah. that that building was built. And uh, exactly, not having the federal. Uh, name on right, the, that's on kind it. of the giveaway. Yeah, there. that's a good giveaway, mm-hmm. exactly. And there's the other building I wanted to mention actually uh, is a building that has many, many stories uh, itself, and it is another bank building in Lansing. It's on the corner of Michigan Avenue and Washington Square, right downtown, where there's a big roundabout now, and uh, just a block from the state capitol building. That building it has a lot going on on it. It has a beautiful bronze plaque. I think it's bronze. I've learned now after today's episode. I'm quite certain it is because it looks very much like the sign we just talked about. On the south side of the building, it has the Pledge of Allegiance Mm. carved into it and is the original Pledge of Allegiance, not the one we say now. I won't mention the difference. You can look it up. Then on the, uh, I guess it would be, the east side of the building is the really fancy, uh, amazing part of it. It's the cherry on the cake. It is a carving by Ulysses Ritchie, who's a very well-known artist. It's a bas-relief type of a carving. And Ritchie carved, uh, amongst others, the uh, Bank of Canada building in Ottawa, yeah. Canada. He's a very well-known artist from that time period. And the, the carving, the sign, if you will, uh, is a scene yes. of a day in the life of Lansing where a guy robs yeah. the bank and gets caught by the yeah. police. <laughs> so... A lot going on there. There is indeed <laughs> a lot going on, but but I'm glad you mentioned that because this ties in a little bit to what we talked about the last episode, where mm-hmm. um, signs all incorporate a value of functionality, but a value of artistic, uh, sure, artistic value as well, and and that's a really good example of it, um, and especially in those days, um, all sign makers were artists. And they are nowadays too. It's just a different, um, a different set of skills, if you will. Mm-hmm. But um, it was more of a fine art element uh, back then, mm-hmm. I think. Um, whereas now the art, art and science are more melded together. But um, that that that's a great example there. And again, tying into the architecture, um, obviously it tells a, a story mm-hmm. <laughs> and a. Uh, uh, a riddle, if you will. <laughs> oh, very much. But um, also, you know, when when people are putting their money in a bank, they want to know it's secure. Oh, absolutely. And to go back to what you just said, I want to I want to expand our thoughts on that for just a moment. Art and and functionality, functionality. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, I think that we we say art and functionality. And understood that maybe those things are sometimes the same, but maybe they're not either. Whereas in the pre-industrial world, people hardly ever distinguish between what we may call design and maybe what we would call utility. The two were not separated in a way we separate them now. In fact, people oftentimes thought you couldn't separate them. In order for something to truly function good, it had to instill a type of feeling in you. You know? Sure. 
Absolutely. And even industrial tools, and I know we're deviating a little bit nowadays, but Daniel, this is something you and I have talked about before. Even when you look at some of the great industrial machinery that was made oh, absolutely. way back when in the, uh, say, the Art Deco era, the 20s and 30s, and it has a design element to it that actually exceeds, I think, sure. the functionality. Oh, for sure. And But nowadays, that stuff's incorporated in it, too. It's just in ways we don't think about. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a movie out there about the Font Helvetica, Oh, yes. That I encourage everyone to watch. Mm-hmm. And uh, the font itself, it, there's a lot more to it than you think about. But it's like a lot of good signage nowadays. The attitude is almost it's there, but it's not. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. It does. It's sort of you would notice it if it wasn't there, but you don't necessarily yes. notice it mm-hmm. when it is there. And a lot of the uh, messages are almost subconscious. Mm-hmm. And especially if you look around at modern bank signage, mm-hmm. it actually has a very important and prominent message it's sending. It's just almost subconscious. Sure. It's more of a familiar and a comfortable mm-hmm. message versus a uh, 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 brick or stone stability like the right. uh, earlier uh, bank signage was. Sure. Security mm-hmm. and and now it's sort of comfort and security. Yes. But but every bit the amount, every bit the thought that went into the uh, old science certainly goes into nowadays too. Sure, sure, just in different ways. I think that's a good place to leave off then for our uh, episode today. I want to thank you very 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 much for coming by, Dan. My really pleasure. appreciate it. We always always enjoy learning about these things in our community, and and all of you will of course now have at least a couple more buildings three, really, uh, in Lansing to uh, go ahead and take a look at next time you're in this lovely area. So we will close out there, and I will see all of you next time. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories.